0: Greetings, everyone. Good to be here. We are continuing in our series through the book of Matthew. And uh, I would invite you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 10. We're only going to look at one passage today, so keep your Bibles open here. We're going to look at several different verses and passages within this so-called sermon of commissioning. So Matthew... Chapter 10, verse 24. Matthew 10, 24, I'm going to read through 11, verse 1. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for a disciple that he be like his teacher, and a servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house, Beelzebub, how much more will they call those of his household? Therefore, do not fear them, for there is nothing covered that will not be revealed and hidden that will not be made known. Whatever I tell you in the dark, speak in the light. And what you hear in the ear, preach on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a copper coin? And not one of them falls to the ground apart from your father's will. But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Do not fear, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. Therefore, whoever confesses me before men, him I will also confess before my father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, him I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. Do not think that I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies will be those of his own household. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he, does not, he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who finds his life will lose it. And he who loses his life for my sake will find it. He who receives you receives me. And he who receives me receives him who sent me. He who receives a prophet in the name of a prophet shall receive a prophet's reward. And he who receives a righteous man in the name of a righteous man shall receive a righteous man's reward. And whoever gives one of these little ones only a cup of cold water in the name of a disciple, assuredly I say to you, he shall by no means lose his reward. Now it came to pass when Jesus finished commanding his 12 disciples that he departed from there to teach and to preach in their cities. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we ask for understanding from this very important sermon that Jesus gives us, this sermon of commissioning, this sermon of of evangelistic charge that you give to your disciples. I pray that as we grapple with the, the consequences of this in this section today that we would not shrink back, but rather move forward and press in to embrace the cost of following Jesus. I pray that the words that Jesus spoke would leap off of the page into our hearts, into our minds, into the deep places that need to be gripped by these very intense words. We pray these things... Father, in the name of the one who spoke them. Amen. Okay, so by way of review and just setting up where we are from before, hopefully we remember that there's five long speeches in Matthew, which is akin to how Moses has, has these five books, Genesis through Deuteronomy. And the very first speech is called the Sermon on the Mount. And the second one is usually called the Sermon of Commissioning. There's some variation on that, uh, but that's what most people call it. And the reason we read through 11.1 and not through the last verse of chapter 10 is that all of these five speeches end with something like, when Jesus finished, he, and then something happens. They all, they all have that expression. And so you can see that here in 11.1, when Jesus finished commanding his 12 disciples. So they all have a signature ending there and common language there. And also by way of structure, remember that the very first line, the very first line that Jesus speaks to his disciples was in Matthew chapter 4, verse 19, where he says, follow me and I will make you fishers of men or fishers of people. It's a generic term for men and women. Uh, That was the very first line. And I've often said that if I had to say there was one line that summarizes discipleship, if I had to pick just one line, that'd be the line I would pick. Matthew 4 19 where it's very simple follow me and I will make you fishers of people and it's it's I say that not just because it's the very first line in the whole New Testament that Jesus gives to his disciples it captures what we're gonna see today in the sermon on uh, um, commissioning really well so there's a, a command follow me and then there's a promise if you follow me you're gonna become a fisher of people there's a, a, a close promise attached to that command to follow Jesus. So if we follow Jesus, if we're authentically following Jesus, we will become fishers of people. Now, the first speech, the, the Sermon on the Mount, I think we primarily learn there about what following Jesus looks like. right? We, and I spent many, many messages over, I think, two years going through the Sermon on the Mount, and we see in great detail what is meant by that first phrase, follow me, right? So if you go through the Sermon on the Mount, you will learn what Jesus intends there. In Matthew 10, what do we see? We see Jesus making his disciples into fishers of people, okay? So hopefully you can see that structure there. So the umbrella headline is, the umbrella line for discipleship is, follow me and I will make you fishers for people, Matthew five to seven, primarily tells us what it looks like to follow Jesus. Matthew 10, we learn about how to become fishers for people. Okay, so this is not an official term that anybody uses, uh, but I think you could probably rename these sermons. If I could rename them, I would rename them. Sermon on the Mount just tells you about the location. It doesn't tell you about the content, right? It's sort of uh, not the most helpful title. I would call that the Sermon of Discipleship because it tells you about following Jesus. And I would call this sermon, the Sermon on Disciple Making. Okay, because what is Jesus telling the disciples to do? To go out and to teach uh, the people that he just, uh, all the things that he had just commanded them. And to draw people into the kingdom using all the principles that we've been looking at over the last few weeks. Now, I have been fascinated this for, by this for more than 20 years. Actually, closer to 30 years. That I've noticed very consistently that there's one side, there's one group of churches or one group of people that tends to emphasize the commands of Jesus, uh, Sermon on the Mount type activities, but they're weak on evangelism and disciple making. And then on the flip side, there's another group of people that really emphasizes discipleship and evangelism, but they're really weak on the commands of Jesus. Right? It's very striking to me that like you can just... Broadly speaking, put put groups and people into those two categories. Now, of course, that is a trap of the devil. This is a false dichotomy. We should not be having to pick between the two. Uh, When I was in college, this was something that really, really weighed on me uh, about 30 years ago. And and so I I was on this quest for like, okay, there's got to be people who like bring both worlds together. I'm a a missionary kid, so I really appreciate the realm of evangelism and discipleship, but I I knew that that alone was not adequate. And I found a a handful of people who brought both worlds together really, really well, really powerfully. Uh, John Wesley, Charles Finney, and Spurgeon are my favorite three who kind of bring those worlds together. That they're all amazing with their evangelism and discipleship. I mean, some of the most, actually, probably the most successful people in the West over the last 300 years, but they're all really, really strong on holiness and discipleship, and they're not softies by any means, if if you've read them, and I was reading last week a Spurgeon book, and, you know, he was a pastor in, in London, and a lot of people think of him more as just a pastor who was just doing pastoral work, who gave a lot of good sermons, very eloquent person, but... He says this, he says, "'Soul winning is the chief business "'of the Christian minister. "'Indeed, it should be the main pursuit "'of every true believer.'" Oh, Spurgeon, this is late 1800s. This is a quote that Malcolm actually read last week from Charles Finney. "'Those who do not make the salvation of souls "'the great and leading goal of their lives "'are serving their own gods. "'The aim of all Christian institutions, "'that which gives value to them all, "'is the salvation of sinners.'" The end for which Christ lives and for which he has left his church in the world is the salvation of sinners. This is the business that God puts his servants about. If anyone is not making this business the main goal of his life, he's not serving the Lord, but instead his own gods. So both Spurgeon and Finney they're emphasizing the fishers of people side. This is what Jesus is saying. Follow me, what's the goal? You're gonna become fishers of people. Here's how John Wesley puts it You have one business on earth to save souls. So three different perspectives, all three from very different denominations and backgrounds. Spurgeon was Baptist, Charles Finney is hard to classify, Wesley, of course, is Methodist. So my goal for us is to unite these together, to take strong, robust Sermon on the Mount thinking and unite it with Matthew 10 disciple making, not to be falling into one side or the other. So we have now, this is our third week in this sermon, the Sermon of Commissioning. And we used an outline that I talked about before. Verses 5 to 15 is travel instructions. 16 to 23 is trouble instructions. It's all about persecution. And then the final section, 24 to 42, is trust instructions. So today we're going to look at the final section, 24 to 42 plus 11 one 11.1 we're not going to talk that much about. And every one of those sections ends with Assuredly I say to you, if you remember that. Okay. So I'm going to I'm going to give several points here straight from the sermon of commissioning that are intended to to have us think long and hard and carefully about how we're doing with Jesus's goal for discipleship. Follow me and I will make you fishers of people. Okay, my first point is that Imitating Jesus' proclamation brings Jesus' persecution, okay? Imitating Jesus' proclamation brings Jesus' persecution. Okay, so this is actually a very straightforward point that he basically says in verses 24 to 26. So if we remember, so the first part of the Sermon on Commissioning, Jesus says, Go out, preach the gospel of the kingdom. He wants them to go out, and hopefully you remember this, he wants them to go out in these places of great, or these these attitudes, these mindsets of great vulnerability and dependency. Remember, they're not supposed to take a lot of things with them. They're supposed to, they're supposed to be in these postures of trust. He tells them to go to the lost sheep of Israel. He also gives them authority to make strong statements about, about the fate of people on the day of judgment. And... The in, in verses 24 to 25, right after this section on trouble, all the persecution, he says, just so you understand, there's a reason why you have to go through all this. And the reason is, he uses three metaphors. Hopefully you caught all three. Disciple, teacher. What's the next one? Master. Yeah, master, slave. And the third one, it's, it's household and then head of household. Right? So those are the three that he, he gives. And he gives three repeated structures in society to basically say that if you are a, a disciple of a teacher, it is expected that you would go through the same things that the teacher did because you're trying to imitate the teacher. If you are a, a slave, you're not going to be greater than... The, the master, you're going to have to, if anything, have a harder life than the master. If you're living in a household and that household is being maligned, if the head of the household has done something wrong, when you walk the streets, you're going to incur the same shame because you're attached to that head of household. right? So there's three pictures that Jesus gives us to make sure that we get it, to show that the insults that fell on Jesus will be the insults that fall on disciple makers. Now, it won't fall on you if you live a quiet, comfortable, sort of huddled life, right? This is for people who are going out and actually preaching the gospel of the kingdom. Here the insult is Beelzebub, which means something like ruler of demons. But all throughout this, this sermon, there's a repeated motif, which is that if you are proclaiming Jesus, then you're going to suffer the same fate that Jesus suffers. Okay, so kind of carrying this on in verse 27, he says, Whatever I tell you in the dark, speak in the light, and what you hear in the ear, preach on the housetops. So what is he basically saying there? He's basically saying in sort of poetic language, he's saying, the things that you're hearing me say to you in these small settings, these small intimate settings, I want you to proclaim them publicly, boldly, issue bold proclamation that, will not be hidden. Jesus had already said in the Sermon on the Mount that he doesn't want them to hide their witness under some kind of a, a, a bushel or, you know, cover up their light in some way. Here he's basically saying, get out there and do this from the rooftops. Now this analogy doesn't work very well in Boston or in a lot of America because our roofs, like the roof here and the roof, the roof on my house is even more so, it's very tilted, right? If you look at when you walk out, look at how steep the incline is on our roof. It's very tilted because of course there's all this snow and you don't want snow and rain to accumulate. You want it to just roll off the house. But in the first century houses pretty much uniformly had flat roofs. And that was for a reason because they would sleep on those roofs in, in the hot months so they could be uh, cooled and, of course, didn't have fans or electricity or AC. Uh, it talks about an axe, how people would go up there to pray. That's mentioned in Acts 10. So it was almost like everyone had a, an extra story that was out there. And a practice that was, that was done was that if you had something important or public, you would get up on top of your rooftop and you would just shout that out to people. And there you are on an upper level. It'd be very easy to have that message. Maybe you had some great news about your daughter getting married or a baby being born. You could get up there on your rooftop and shout it out. And it was, a, it was an easy way to, to communicate public information. So Jesus is basically saying, all these things that you're getting, I want you to boldly proclaim them in public settings. All right, my second point is that our response to Jesus' charge for public witness determines our destiny. Our response to Jesus' charge for public witness determines our destiny. Now He basically says this straight up in verses 32 to 33. One of the words we'll see is a little confusing, but we'll explain it. So in verse 32, Jesus says, Therefore, whoever confesses me before men, for people, him, I will also confess before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, him, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. Okay. Number one, I think this is an amazing statement to make. If, if this were anybody but Jesus, you would think this person had megalomania, right? I mean, imagine that. Confessing someone on the last day before God is going gonna, is gonna to guarantee you good standing with the Father. It's an amazing line. Like, it's easy for us to, to read over these quickly and not let it sink in about how the normal patterns of Jewish monotheism and just your standing with Yahweh being determinative, Jesus is moving all of that onto himself. So just a remarkable verse that's easy to, to miss. There's a confusing word here, which is the word confess. So he says, therefore, whoever confesses me before man, that's how the New King James translates it, and of course, when we say the word confess, we first think of like confessing sin, right? You say something that you did wrong. It's a hard word to translate in English. The, if you look it up, which I did in the official scholarly Greek lexicons, you get things like state in public, acknowledge, praise, uh, The NLT, the New Living Translation, actually translates it, whoever acknowledges me publicly before others. So that's probably a better translation, because, again, the word confess, we don't really use in in that way, at least, in that confession of sin sense. So I think the NLT gets it right here. The NIV does something very similar. It says something like acknowledge publicly. So this is all about public proclamation of identity and solidarity with Jesus in the context of evangelism. So we, we know then, and on the flip side, what is denying Jesus? It's keeping quiet. It's withdrawing from public witness. Peter does something similar near the end of his, of Jesus' earthly life. So here, this passage, this famous passage that many of us, probably all of us have heard. What's it about? It's about, again, in context, it's about publicly witnessing about Jesus and if we do that then we gain a good standing with him on the last day this is is um, yeah very very strong language that we want to be holding our mind as we go through here okay all right the third third uh, point here is that Disciples are signing up for peace with God and hostility from others. Disciples are signing up for peace with God and hostility from others. Okay, so I'm just going to read this again, just to let it sink in. And I want you to try, to try to put yourself in the shoes of the people who are hearing Jesus here. 34 says, Do not think I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies will be those of his own household. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who finds his life will lose it, and he who loses his life for my sake will find it. Okay, so... Again, the context here is, is disciples going out preaching the gospel of the kingdom to, to fellow Israelites here. And it's kind of confusing, right? Because Jesus says, Don't think that I came to bring peace on earth. are like, Well, wait a minute. <laughs> What's up with that? Because if you read at the top part of the sermon, what were the what were the disciples supposed to say when they entered into a house? Peace. Peace be upon you. And it was like, wait, Jesus, what? Like you just told them that you're supposed to, as they go in from house to house, they're supposed to proclaim peace. But now you're saying you're not coming to bring peace. You're coming to bring a sword. Is this a contradiction? There's two, there's two main solutions to this. And I actually think they both could be right. The, the first solution is one that I would say more modern commentators give. And then the second one is more early church commentators. And like I said, I think they're both probably right. The most obvious harmonization that I thought of was the one that modern commentators gravitate to, which is that he's speaking here about the relationships that this, that the disciples have around them, that he's, he's not saying that they're not supposed to speak peace in others lives, but he's saying that the aftermath of their proclamation of the gospel will leave especially their proximate relationships in tatters there's going to be a lot of strain and a lot of hostility there makes sense right that's the context he's talking about family members and how people are gonna are gonna turn against them and so he's saying the consequence of you're going out and preaching is not going to be it's not going to be uh, the fact that everyone's gonna love you and put you on their shoulders and hip hip hooray it's going to be that people are going to turn on you and thus it will feel very um, violent and hostile and sometimes it will even lead to martyrdom. So that's one, one solution. There, there is another harmonization that actually Tertullian and, and Hilary give in the early church which is a little bit different which is that they identify the sword here as being the sword of the Word of God and the sword of the Spirit. In other words that that when, people, when, he, basically he's, when Jesus is going and telling his disciples, he's saying that your, your proclamation is less, everything's great, we're all, we're all fine, you love me, I love you, but it's the sword of scripture which cuts and, and hurts and it divides, uh, it divides uh, spirit from soul and it just produces all this conviction. So that's another possible harmonization as I said, it could be that both of these are the case. I am struck by how there is no prosperity gospel at all here, right? So, I mean, if you listen to a typical message in, in the, the world today, especially in the West, this is very different. There is no promise here of you're gonna, life is gonna be good, no promise of great success. There's a promise of a lot of rejection. In fact, there's not even hardly anything highlighted here with success. There's a little bit at the end, which we'll get to. Um, I, I often think that a lot of people get discouraged in evangelism because they've actually, in subtle ways, they've bought into the prosperity gospel. They think that they're going to go out and like it's going to be great and people are going to really like them and love them. And when it doesn't work out like that, they're like, this feels terrible. I don't want to do this anymore. There was a mismatch between expectation and reality. But what Jesus does is he says, no, 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 no. If you're out there preaching the gospel of the kingdom, expect rejection, especially from those closest to you. And if you go into evangelism with that mindset, it turns into a very different enterprise. There is some success, of course, but it is, it is limited. So, so this is, uh, this is uh, an intense passage here. I, I think verse 36 is chilling. Um, A person's enemies will be those of his own household. Um, It's, wow, I mean, this is really, really intense business here. Jesus goes on in 38 and 39 to say, He who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who finds his life will lose it, and he who loses his life for my sake will find it. So again, what's the context? We, We hear this verse talked about all the time, right? But what is the context? The context is it's set in this sermon of commissioning. It's people that are on the move, preaching the gospel, and he's saying that that's what it is to take up your cross. Um, it's, not, it's not having a cold. It's not I'm having difficulty praying in the morning. It's not, oh, I'm, I'm, I can't read my Bible because I'm bored, so I'm going to take up my cross and read the Bible. It's, all that is wrong. The, what Taking up the cross here in context is is going and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom to those around us, and that's really hard. Uh, What does Jesus say, though? He says that makes the astonishing statement that if you don't do this, if you don't take up your cross and follow after him, he says, you're not worthy of me. By the way, that's another really interesting observation here. Worthy of me is said three times. You see that in 37 and 38? He who loves father and mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who, takes, he who does not take his cross and follow from me is not worthy of me. Uh, again, out of anybody else's mouth, this would be megalomania. But here, what this is, is a strong statement of, of one's status with God himself. Uh, with Jesus and therefore with God. Okay, so... Again, reading these verses in context, I think, is so important. Do we we really believe that that this is what Jesus is charging us to do, is to follow him and to become fishers for people, right? If I were to ask you, how has your week been, month been, year been in that? Jesus is telling his followers that to do disciple-making means you're going to have your relationships around you be broken you're going to especially lose the esteem of those that are closest to you which meant even more in ancient Israel because they had in general a tighter family structure and this would have just been such a bitter pill I mean it's hard for us to to comprehend uh, how much family meant of course family means a lot today but it meant even more back then and to lose one standing with one's family would have been very very difficult Okay, so, so Jesus has given strong statements now about what it is to follow after him and to enter into this vocation of following Jesus. So that raises a problem and my next three points are going to, to deal with this problem, which is, this sounds kind of scary. Uh, this sounds kind of scary, particularly if you have a problem with fear of man. Uh, one, of the, one of the most common fears in the world today is fear of man, right? It's so common that in a, in a setting people say, oh, I didn't do this, I didn't evangelize, I didn't, I didn't uh, speak in a certain setting, I didn't do different things because of fear of man. So Jesus actually says three times, I hope you caught it, three times do not fear in this section. We're gonna look at each one. Each one is one of my points. My, my fourth point is fear of man dissolves in the light of final vindication. Okay, so let's look at verse 26, therefore, do not fear them for there is nothing covered that will not be revealed and hidden that will not be known. Okay, what is this about? What is verse is 26 when you first read it, you're like, Jesus, what are you talking about here? What, what is this something that's covered that's going to be revealed and what's hidden that's going to be known? Okay, everybody agrees on this, ancient and modern. Thankfully, it's actually quite straightforward. What it means here is that the truth, which may be obscured right now, will one day be evident to all. That at the at the judgment, who's on the right side will be perfectly clear to everyone. Every action will be revealed. Who's in the right and who's in the wrong will be publicly known. So Jesus is basically saying, don't fear, because in due time, you're being on the the correct side on God's side will be known to all. It will be seen that you, are, you, will, you will be vindicated. As outnumbered as you may feel, as pressured as you may feel, as, as challenging as it may be to hold on to these truths, everything will be shown on the last day. Okay, so it's, a, it's an encouraging thought. It, it, you see this a lot in the Psalms. Again, this is not part of our psyche, nearly as much as it should be. But, you know, so often in the Psalms, there's this this kind of struggle and this wrestling. And eventually he finds confidence because one day God is going to vindicate the righteous and to punish the wicked. And that, that hope that permeates particularly the Old Testament is here in the New. We just often miss it. I sometimes think, too, about when I look at this verse, I think about how Probably the vast majority of mistreatment that authentic Christians receive goes completely unnoticed. It's not on the news. There's no fanfare. There's there's no article about it. It just just happens somewhere. Most insults, most beatings, probably even most killings are never on videotape that people will know about. And there's going to be, on the judgment day, there's going to be a revelation of all of those deeds, all of those words, Is going to be up for the world to see on Judgment Day in front of Jesus and the Living God. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine that scene of all of the, watching all of the insults and and hostilities that were poured onto the true people of God uh, and the, the shame that will be felt, but also the vindication that will be experienced? Okay, my fifth point is that fear of man dissolves in the light of God's power. Verse 28 is a verse that I just love. It's a great verse to memorize. We memorized this in our family devotions a long time ago. Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell, in Gehenna. There's a sermon from the early church, which I just love the the line from. It says, Let us fear, therefore, that we may not fear. Let us fear, therefore, that we may not fear. In other words, all you gotta do is fear God, and then all of the fears go away. It's a beautiful thought there. A person who truly fears God succeeds in overcoming all other fears. Who cares what anybody will think when we are comparing their power in the light of God. Of course, Jesus' argument here is that, he says the worst that somebody can do to you on the earth is kill you. That's the worst they can possibly do to you. But of course, God has power to destroy both soul and body. And he says here that in the light of eternity, God's power is far greater than anything that man can wield. Justin Martyr has a great line. He says, you can kill us, but you can't hurt us. I like that. You can kill us, but you can't hurt us. So this is um, just a, a deep principle that runs underneath the New Testament. Uh, one author, Dale Bruner, puts it well. Our time needs the corrective of an otherworldliness in order to be braver in this world. What is the correction? The correction is to truly see this world in the light of the other world, the new creation, Gehenna, in order to be brave in this world. People who struggle with fear of man, cowardice, we need to press in to understanding God's power. Okay, finally, so that was the second do not fear. The first do not fear was 26. Or sorry, the first do not fear was 26. The second do not fear was 28. The third do not fear is in 31, I believe. Let me check. Is it 31? Yes, it is. Thank you. Um, So he says, Do not fear, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. Okay, so what is this argument? So Jesus does something very similar that he does in the Sermon on the Mount, which he makes an appeal to the world of animals. Jesus was an animal lover. Um, And what he does in the Sermon on the Mount is he says, Look at the birds of the air, for they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Okay, so he says there are these tiny little creatures out there, these birds, that are are not consumed with worry because why? The Father above feeds them. Here, Jesus makes a very, very similar argument. And he says that though a little sparrow is cheap by human standards, he says not one of them Not one single sparrow. This is a mind-blowing thought, right? Do you really believe this? I believe it. That not one sparrow falls to the ground. Okay, now the New King James has a a bad translation here. I'll I'll correct it in a moment. It says, uh, not one of them falls to the ground apart from your father's will. That word will is not in Greek at all. It just should be, the ESV actually does it correctly. The ESV has, uh, not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. So apart from your father's will, to me sounds sort of Calvinist, like, okay, God saying like, yes, you know, let the sparrow die now. It's really more about accompaniment. It's about, about the father's being even with um, the, the sparrow in some sense. Uh, an amazing, amazing line. And so what, what Jesus does here is he says that, okay, there's two spar- uh, sparrows are cheap. Not one of them falls to the ground, apart from the Father, without the Father, that God's eye is with even that tiny little sparrow that people don't pay attention to. And then he says, the very hairs of your head are numbered. So, you know, a lot of people struggle with, okay, I think God loves humanity, but I'm not sure God loves me. Right? It's a very, very common struggle. Here, what Jesus is saying, to make this ultra-personal, if you believe Jesus here, you should never doubt God's love for you personally, he says that the hairs on your head, every single hair on your head, is numbered. This, this is just great language to try to localize God's love, not just to humans in general or to a class of people, but to individuals. God knows the number of hairs on Seth's head, on Laura's head, on Kimberly's head, on Carrie's head, on Francesco's head every single. It's kind of crazy, unbelievable, right? knows every single, (laughs) I I hear the joke yet, on your head too, Malcolm, it's a smaller number, but. (laughs) um, (laughs) Right, but it's it's a great principle, isn't it? That every single hair on our head is numbered, and so what does Jesus say? He says, you're of more value than the sparrow, and if God is with the sparrow when it falls, he will be with you, even if you fall. Even if you, you, you perish there, it is the witness of God, the presence of God that we have. And so God's personal accompaniment, his knowledge, his, his care for every single person, every single human being on the planet uh, is something that we need to just delight in. So the fear of man should delight, should dissolve in the light of God's personal care for you. Okay, my seventh and final point is that in this proclamation, we experience union with Jesus. In gospel proclamation, we experience union with Jesus. All right, let's look at verses 40 to 42 here. So in 40 to 42, Jesus says, "'He who receives you, receives me, "'and he who receives me, receives him who sent me. "'He who receives a prophet in the name of a prophet "'shall receive a prophet's reward. And he who receives a righteous man in the name of a righteous man shall receive a righteous man's reward. And whoever gives one of these little ones only a cup of cold water in the name of a disciple, assuredly, I say to you, he shall by no means lose his reward. Okay. I love this, this final part of the sermon on commissioning, the sermon on disciple making. What is this about? So... Have you ever wondered first where Paul especially gets all this, like, in Christ language? You know, he loves to say that, like, you're in Christ, right? You ever wonder that? And, like, it's not in the Gospels. Like, did he just make this up? Or, like, where does this come from? Well, it comes from from this. It comes from this passage and a handful of others where what Jesus says in verse 40 is very profound. He says, He who receives you receives me and he who receives me receives him him who sent me there's this chain father son us kind of like a a telescope you know when you fold up the telescope there's the, the, the the inner cylinder and the middle cylinder and the outer one and they're they're concentrically joined there and basically what jesus is saying is that insofar as people treat you they're treating me you are in me in a sense and how they treat you is how they treat me this is the the origin of this concept of being in christ uh, this is an amazing principle that should floor us and and uh, delight us in this union that jesus describes here that how we are treated in this gospel proclamation as we go out is tantamount to how jesus is treated Does that, that should blow you away i hope it blows you away um, so, he, he gives us this truth of the union here, and then in 41, he gives us uh, some, some good news. So in the first part of the Sermon on the Commissioning, he had said already what happens when people reject the message, right? And, and he authorized the apostles to shake the dust off their feet and to say, it's going to be worse for you than it will be for Sodom and Gomorrah, but now he's telling them, okay, But there's also a blessing that accompanies those who actually receive you. Uh, Receive is like welcome. Here, So it's a little confusing the way it's worded. So we'll we'll walk through this. He gives three levels of people. A prophet. New King James says righteous man. It's a neutral term. It should be really righteous person. um, And little ones. Prophet, righteous, a righteous person, and little ones. Everyone see that? See those three levels there? uh Dale, Dale Bruner says it well there, the prophet is the one who speaks God's word. the righteous person is the one who lives God's word and the little one is the one who loves God's word. And you know we, you you may not identify necessarily with prophet that's like pretty big language right like to to identify with with being a prophet. Hopefully you identify more with being righteous you're trying to to press in and live a righteous life. But I love how Jesus gives us vocabulary that everybody should be able to resonate with, even who are the most disenfranchised or feeling disenfranchised, which is the little ones. Uh, Mikron is is the word that's used here. Uh, And the little ones are the ones who don't necessarily have the same stature, but again, they're they're described as, as being part of this Jesus community. Why does he use the term little one here? The little ones are the ones that are easy to knock around, right? They're the, they're the ones that are the easiest to push around and, and uh, they're the ones that don't fight back. It fits with non-resistance there. And I want you to hold this in your mind because this is going to come up in Matthew 18 and it's going to come up in, at the sheep and the goats, uh, this expression, little ones. It's clearly here, I think, all meant to be different descriptors of the, the community of people that are following Jesus. And... What does it mean to do something in the name of? He who receives a prophet in the name of a prophet shall receive a prophet's reward. He receives a righteous person in the name of a righteous person shall receive a righteous person's reward. And whoever gives one of these little ones only a cup of cold water in the name of a disciple. So do you see how, first of all, how little one and disciple are paralleled there? I want everyone to see this. Mostly because this is going to be really important to interpret the sheep and the goats and Matthew 18. But even here, little one and disciple are like... The same concept, different ways of saying that. Everyone see that? Say your eyes on that because I want you to see that in verse 42. Okay, so in the name of means because that person is of this type. In other words, if um, say there's a, a Christian who is, is hungry and they go to a food store and they buy their food and they get food, well, that's not giving that person food in the name of being a disciple, right? There's a, there's a purposeful recognition of their status and a desire to serve that person because they are part of the Jesus community that is what in the name of means. Okay, it's just an idiom that we don't really use very much. The, there's, there's other translations that that uh, try to capture this. I, I don't know if they succeed in that. The NIV does, whoever welcomes a prophet as a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. Whoever, whoever welcomes a righteous person as a righteous person, so that's that's decent. Um, so the NLT tries to do something similar. Um, and if you receive a if if you receive righteous people because of their righteousness, you will be given a reward like theirs. Okay, so another attempt to communicate this in the name of which, as I say, we don't really use that expression so much in English. Um, so, so what Jesus is saying is that, okay, he ends the Sermon on Commissioning on a good note. He's saying, there will be people who receive you. Okay? He's, he's put a lot of, of heavy caution and a lot of, of reasons for us to have trepidation here, but he does signal at the end that there will be those who receive Jesus's proclaimers of the gospel, and they will receive a reward. And I like how it says at the end, assuredly I say to you, this is like they will absolutely get their reward. This is strong language that Jesus uses. Okay, so in conclusion here, I've given you seven points. I'll just reiterate those points here. So the first one was that imitating Jesus' proclamation brings Jesus' persecution. Our second point was our response to Jesus' charge for public witness determines our destiny. Third point, disciples are signing up for peace with God and hostility from others. Fourth point, fear of man dissolves in the light of final vindication. Fifth point, fear of man dissolves in the light of God's power. Sixth point, fear of man dissolves in the light of God's personal care for you. And then in the seventh and final point in proclamation, we experience union with Jesus. Okay, so... I want to finish with where I started here and to again ask us about our discipleship and our disciple making. I mentioned before that there tends to be this polarization, this split of those who who embrace, and it's good to embrace commands and and, uh, living the Sermon on the Mount, but retreat from the Matthew 10 disciple making, this this uh very bold proclamation that costs relationships this is a heavy cost and now i hope whenever you hear verses like whoever finds his life will lose it whoever loses his life for my sake i hope you remember where this comes from this comes from matthew 10 this comes from this charge where jesus tells his people to go out and to evangelize whoever confesses me whoever publicly acknowledges me whoever shouts from the rooftop right these are strong passages that are about our destiny and how they hinge on our faithfulness to this, this charge. So how are we honestly doing here? And if you had to say, which side of that, of that um, divide do you, do you reside right now? And how can we really do our best to bring them together, not to oppose them? Jesus said in Matthew four nineteen, as I mentioned, follow me and I will make you fishers of people. Just like in fishing, most fish don't bite. Um, Fishing, especially back then, was hard work, very, very hard work. Discipleship is even harder. It will cost you the relationships that are near and dear to you. I want to um, to kind of end here with a reminder of how upfront Jesus is here about the cost of following him. There's There's a famous ad from Shackleton. So Shackleton, a lot of you know, was the person who went to Antarctica. This was in the early 20th century. And apparently there's some debate if this ad actually was printed or if it was just uh, lore. But the people who traveled with him said that Shackleton talked like this. So even if it wasn't real, uh, it was the point still stands. So the ad, as it goes, says this. Uh, so he's advertising for people who want to take this harrowing journey to the South Pole, to go to, well, he, he didn't go all the way to the South Pole, to make it to Antarctica and to voyage there. And um, he says, this ad says, men wanted for hazardous journey, low wages, bitter cold, long hours of complete darkness, safe return, doubtful, honor and recognition in event of success. It's quite the ad, isn't it? Would you respond to that ad? Men wanted for hazardous journey, low wages, bitter cold, long hours of complete darkness, safe return, doubtful, honor and recognition in event of success." I made my own version of that, that I think Jesus would would craft something near to that based on Matthew 10. This is Jesus' ad. Men and women wanted for a life of self-denial, no wages bitter rejection and loss of family, suffering and possibly death required, honor, vindication, and eternal life for me on the day of judgment. Let's pray. Father, I pray that we would step out boldly into proclamation, into Matthew 10, and to live out this charge that Jesus has given us, knowing the the gravity and the intensity of the language that Jesus uses here that if we publicly proclaim him, if we are faithful to this, then he will acknowledge us before you, Father, on the day of judgment. I pray that we would be bold, that we would not fear, because of those three reasons that Jesus gives us, the final vindication, the, uh, the power that you, Father, have, and the, the care and the concern that you have. We praise you for all three of those great truths, and may we live in the light of those truths. I pray that we would not rest on our laurels, but that we would press in strongly, boldly, faithfully into Jesus' charge. Follow me, and I will make you fishers of people. I pray that that we would not be people of mere words, but of action, and that even this week would be marked with fulfilling this call. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.